namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa I haven't been up here for a while, so <laughs> you know, it's realizing my height above you. I just, um, I was just, I just came back a few days ago from uh, a retreat I was teaching in France, and uh, it was an old Cistercian monastery, a very beautiful place. I was turned into a kind of, a kind of VIP retreat center, very like a resort, but very beautifully done. Sort of, there was a kind of modesty and good taste, and. Um, it's very nice just to see what happened in a different situation. Like today it's here in France. It was a different group, different people, different language. So yet it's the same <clears throat> motivation that brings us here, well that brings us to the Dhamma to the interest, to this interest we have in uh, getting close to a teaching that speaks to our heart, that uh, even though we may not know very much or we may not have experienced yet very much the fruits of this practice, um, we realize quite quickly that this is pretty much a, a kind of gem, isn't it? A gem in a human life, something very... Um, we're very fortunate to bump into us something like this teaching, to actually meet this teaching, to even get interested in it, or not just interested, get completely ready to um, commit ourselves to live deeply according to the Dhamma, to live deeply, as deeply as we can do, as we can be. Uh, to re- truly walk the, you know, walk the talk, what, what, walk what we are teaching ourselves. That's one of the things you realize after a while. You may have teachers, you may have loads of bookshelves filled with books on Buddhism. You may even study a Buddhist course at university or meet many gurus. <laughs> many teachers, many agents, but in the end, unless we are um, well established in teaching ourselves, we haven't yet what I would call an inner stability or inner uh, the source of the of our mind well established this the part of ourselves that can really help the transformation of our heart. 
So this is what happened for the first few years of our training. We learn how to keep seeing the same old thing, <laughs> the same old story, the same old mistakes, the same old, what we call mistakes, by the way, which may not be a mistake. It's simply something not well done according to your judgment, something that maybe don't fit into the system, and you wish it would fit into the system, then it doesn't, and you feel upset about it. Or just observing for a long, long time a mind that is not very clever. I think that's what brought me to this teaching, that you realize that your mind is so inadequate in a way, in a way it apprehends life not very adequate because it's just clumsy. We have a clumsy mind. And it doesn't seem to appear, it doesn't seem to, that the more we get uh, knowledge and the more we accumulate learning and very sophisticated intellect and very um, refined mind, that doesn't seem to change very much, this kind of clumsiness of our of our personality mind, of our habits mind, if you see, because it's habits. And habits are not, you know, they are kind of good for certain things, but as we know, at some point it becomes depressing to fall into the same old habits. It's quite depressing. And you realize you have little control over your, your mind and it keeps going back to the same old ruts. So we may think, oh, there's something wrong there. Actually, there's nothing wrong. It's just a role of habits. Habits, you don't need to think about them. That's why they call habits. You have to think everything you need to do when you drive on the... Not that I have driven on the M25 ever, <laughs> but I've just observed the traffic on the M25 and I can imagine how vigilant and alert one needs to be before you get crushed under a truck or bump into some you know, fast lane car that just didn't see you, missed you, and you just end up in a very bad condition, very bad state. But, um, so we need, you know, habits are good for certain situations. For other situations, they're just dead. It makes your mind dead. That's why we feel miserable. The dukkha is living in a dead world. I mean, dead is a bit heavy, but it is a bit like that, you know. When we say alive, I want to be alive, I want to be awake, I want to be, you know, live. <laughs> I want life to be there. You'll realize that at some point when you realize that your mind is pretty dead and depressed and miserable and seems hopeless, it's a great moment in a human life if you know how to use it. If you don't know how to use it, then it's better you distract yourself with some more t happy uh, means of keeping the mind happy. It's not the end of, you know, it's, it's not the, the solution, but for most people, that's what they know. It's hard to use the dukkha of our life for liberation. Mostly because we have to understand it so well, we have to know it so well, we have to live through it so deeply, we have to be fearless with it so deeply that um, 
we rather turn our back and go somewhere else and find that a new vision of things, a new perspective, rather than dukkha. Right? How to feel the dukkha that end dukkha? Most people are terrified of dukkha because all they know is a dukkha that keep perpetrating, perpetrating dukkha. Suffering, stress, misery. The thing that brought me to this life was the fact that it was wonderful to discover a path that actually, through understanding, through the intelligence of the heart, through the knowledge of your mind, through the acceptance of life as it is, I would be able to end dukkha. And it's not that dukkha is just suffering. Dukkha is every aspect of the mind that is expressing delusion. We don't know yet for a long, long time that we are, you know, some, I think it was this summer when I said, I, I, I gave a talk on Dukkha and the end of Dukkha, if I remember correctly. And I said, I have my own definition of Dukkha because sometimes we try to find the right translation, the right word that's going to express exactly. The best one I find actually was the one that Gentile Saros um, sort of uh, produced from his mind. Uh, was stress, distress, the stress of being a human being in a state of delusion. It's very stressful not to be very intelligent with life, to expect life to give us what it cannot give us, to expect human beings to give us what they can't do, they can't have for you, to want to be happy in a world that's absolutely conditioned by misery. So, it's a work to do, you can see. It's not just something that happened overnight. And maybe sometimes we don't talk yet. It's not talked enough that uh, the fact that we are so interested in a teaching that is well known to, to lead us to the liberation of dukkha or greed or hatred or jealousy or envy, all these mental states that any psychologist will define as misery. Don't have to go back to the Buddha. We have enough expertise in psychology, in modern psychology, to know that all the states of mind the Buddha talked about were just what we... What brings us to a psychotherapist? You know, many people go to psychotherapists because they've been, you know, abandoned by their partner and they feel terribly sad and miserable and angry and upset, you know, or maybe they have an illness that they feel they don't deserve or they, um, you know, they just feel very victimized by whatever happened to them. So we go and see a therapist. It's the same mind, the mind that we have here, the mind that people have in the world. It's the same mind. It's not so different. The difference is the conditions, how the mind is conditioned. When you start working on it, addressing it, understanding it, knowing it, when you know you develop the skill of letting go, the skill of abandoning, the skill of renouncing delusion, greed, hatred, 
the skills. It's like a deep, profound training. Buddhism has been made so popular these days with meditation, mindfulness, and a whole lot of things that it, um, you know, it, it's very attractive for many people to realize that there is some, there is, they can have some handle on their mind. They, they can do certain things, a simple mantra or simple breathing meditation to calm the mind down. So that's, that's a great, you know, an aspect of meditation which is really good. Many people don't have any idea what happens when, you mind, when you're mindful of your mind. <laughs> you're opening the doors, many doors, and you don't really know what's going to pop out of these doors. I, I meet people who have done the mindfulness stress reduction through mindfulness, and then they don't know what to do with it because there's nothing that can carry them on. Unless many people do this kind of training because they want to do something in life that's really worthwhile. I know many people. Mindfulness stress reduction. But then they themselves need also to carry on their training and carry on the, the deepening of the minds, studying the mind and getting into really the, the, the real matter. What is it that to have a mind? What is it that to have a that makes us work so hard for this mind. Why do we think we have to work so hard? Well, mostly because we're pretty stubborn on the whole. Particularly monks and nuns, we're very stubborn. In fact, we were not stubborn, we'll never be able to walk the path. I used to say, very good, celebrate your stubbornness because when you it gets purified, it becomes one of the paramita, you know, determination, aditana. So if you're stubborn when you start, it's a, it's a good sign. Who will be here without stubbornly kind of hanging on in the robe and hanging on in the past and so on? So it's a good quality when it's not attached to, you know, when it becomes more when you, between stubbornness and yourself, you have a space that enables you to be more wise, to discern, you know, the, the quality of the mind that is determined, to discern that, as Ajahn Chah was saying once, you know, starting a monastery is not that difficult. Maintaining it is another business, another affair. Like starting a relationship is not difficult. People fall in love right, left, and center. But maintaining a relationship, a sound relationship with each other is different. You have to work at it every day. It's not something that just you can maintain by good wishes. Something that needs to be really... Um, um, need to put energy in, in, in a and relationship, in maintaining a connection with people. And just like you need, you know, uh, a lot of vigilance to maintain a monastery, to, to be a, a leader of a community, to be a, a leader of uh, people training people, teaching. I mean, if you didn't have that kind of quality of endurance, and you will never be able to do it. 
So this aspect of endurance is very important because, let's face it, you know, life is not fun. There's a lot of challenges in our life that lead us into a, a huge amount of wrong view and wrong perception of things and wrong, you know, we, we tend to think that we interpret the world in such a way that until we are awakened, we are clearer, we are more, we matured in our practice, still the world is a problem out there. We don't have the problem. The world has a problem with us. People are my problems. Situations are my problems. If I wasn't this nationality, I wouldn't have this problem. If I wasn't a man, I would be different. If I wasn't a woman, I would be different. I would be better or worse, whatever you want to call it. But the, 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 as long as you see the world outside there, you can see the world outside. We have a choice. We're completely free to do that. But the problem is that you haven't seen that what you see is actually your own mind. And what I say mind, I have to say I had a, a, a wonderful insight when I was in France. <laughs> when I said, come, I said, you know, you want to know your mind. Everybody say, what is a mind? What is a mind? You know, what is my mind? What do you call a mind? And as you say, just look at your life. Each moment is your mind in action, speech, thoughts, feelings, perception, mood, likes and dislikes. This is your mind. Don't think it's somebody else's mind. When you see, when you get angry with people, you see them are nasty or this or that. This is your mind, not, not their mind, not your mind. And that is really quite, a, an, I guess, a realization, you know, to suddenly realize that what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you f do, what, you know, it's actually you. This mind is doing it. Nobody else is doing it. So that's very freeing because you can, maybe you can have a handle on your world, on your mind itself, rather than to wait for everybody to bow down to you and to tell you how wonderful you are before you can start looking at yourself and not freak out completely. Many of us are very dependent on other people's opinions and views and perception of they have of us and so on. I like looking at the news, I like listening to the news, looking at the news, because I realize people in high power, you know, have terrific challenges, you know, whether they are ethical or non-ethical, that's another business, another story. But, you know, when you are in high, in high position, you're very visible to the world. And if, you have, if you're not a good person, even good people get trashed completely. They get just trampled and trashed. Yeah? So sometimes people really are wishing their life will make them very important people, very visible to the world, some special being and so on. But, and many people rather just stay underground a little bit so nobody notices them. So you have different kind of groups of people. But it's good to reflect on the fact that there are many, many people, not just the poor people, miserable, people go, going hungry, people completely lost with no family. These people are definitely going through intense suffering. But the people also in high power are constantly challenged by their opponents constantly trashed by people who disagree with them. 
And then we are in communities good to reflect. Somebody disagree with you or they look as if they don't find what you say useful or maybe they uh, they have a, you know, a, a very serious face and looking at you and you think, oh my God, what happened? Suddenly your mind is kind of, you know, creating all kind of perception. What's wrong? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? It doesn't, she must be, oh, he must be. What is she telling me? What is he telling me? You know, I'm, what did I do wrong? And suddenly, before you know it, your mind in a complete state. And you think somebody else has done it. <laughs> this is wonderful to imagine that your mind is, you know, that somebody else is at fault when your mind starts moving in the direction you don't like. You have to wake up. That's what we are here for, in a way, to realize that we're quite independent on some level in our work. We're not trying to awaken anybody else. We're awakening this mind. We're liberating this mind here, this one here. And this mind, you know, you could say, you are in my mind. This is my mind right now. You know, I'm talking. I'm on a high seat. I'm on a microphone. I've, and I'm speaking with a French accent. And um a certain age, I mean, in French, I'm gone beyond a certain age. I'm old, I know. I still remember Shinsumedo when you say, I'm no old man now. Every year, one year went past, and an old man talking about his cup of coffee, looking through the window. <laughs> you, can't, you feel it's like his world, but definitely in the aging process. And he was sharing with us how his consciousness saw this world at some point on a conventional level, just to wait until death, basically. <laughs> Not move, just be here present. I'm always amazed when people have so many plans, so many projects, so many desire to go somewhere, to... You know, here is not good enough, so you go, you want to go. Even people very experienced, you know, say, I've got to have a name, we've got to have a something to look for, something to. I say, just get really restless and mad about this and not finding anything, then that's what you will get in the future, madness and restlessness. Be careful. The present moment is actually definitely, without any doubt, preparing your future. So that suddenly makes you feel very responsible. I don't want to have a future that's utterly miserable and depressed. I want a good future, even if time doesn't exist at some level, as we probably many of us know. Still, we are in time, and we feel the time, and we experience the time. I used to hate time, I remember. I have so much aversion for time. That's why I put myself in a kind of very, the training can be very rigid, you know, for some level, it seems very rigid. Why? Because we have to be on time at a certain place on time. You have to have meeting for this, meeting for that. You have to do this, and every morning you do this, and every evening you do this. It's like all organized, you know. You felt sometimes completely stifled from not having some space, some just like your own space, where you can just maybe reorganize yourself, but not somebody else organizing it all the time for you. So, you know, that can, if you, if you get attached to this perception, 
then the training is completely un undoable, you know. You can't do it because you still, you know, the mind is still caught into this idea that it's dependent on that. You're dependent on coming to the puja, coming to this. It's not you're dependent. It's just like you have decided that you're going to put your body in a certain place. The mind is not dependent. The mind is not a marawati or the... You just decided that you, your body and, and mind is going to be doing this activity for a few years, maybe. <clears throat> but don't get rigid through it, because that's really counterproductive to your practice of letting go and liberation. Yet, we do have to go through our mind. So it's not like you can will the mind. In fact, you know, you, dis you, you discovered quite quickly that the mind is not yours because you can't really order it to do the thing you want for very long, maybe for a little bit. And then suddenly it just decides to do, go its own way. Many of us have experienced this with food. You know, when you want to start a diet or you decide to not eat certain things, you know, suddenly you find your mind absolutely obsessed with just not just eating the normal dose, but actually binging on it. <laughs> Even if you made this the strong determination, I won't have these cookies anymore, and so on, the mind continues as its own life. You wish it will shut up and just be quiet for a little while. But sometimes you just start getting very obsessive. I mean, I'm just taking food. But it could be anything. It could be sex. It could be, uh, you know, anger. It could be, you know, I'm going to stop being angry. Oh, my God. Be careful with that. That's why Chen Sumedu always said, don't take any vow, please. Because he knew that if you take a vow, you're attacked by Mara. <laughs> I think he was, <laughs> to my point of view, maybe he was protecting himself to have 20 people around him taking vows and being attacked by Mara will be quite hard to handle, you know. Marai, by the way, for those who don't know, is oneself, according to this wonderful Sufi teaching. I like it. Don't look very far to find out who the devil is. This is just Marai is yourself, or the devil is yourself. The devil is just simply ignorance, you know. That's, that's nothing else. It's just the, the part of you that is not seeing what your mind is doing even though you're training very heavily. And yet, what is it that we have to work with in our training? More, more than anything is actually getting to know ignorance. And to know ignorance is like a really a slow motion work because most of ignorance is about hiding the mind. It's trying to make the mind something that it isn't. You make our thoughts, our perception, our mood, our something that is just an illusion. How many times when I was at the all night sitting at Chitters, or even here when we did it, you know, Mara will say, I can't do it. I've got to do this tomorrow afternoon, not even the morning, tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow morning too. I can't do it. I've got, I'm going to die. If I do it, I know I won't be able to be compassionate the next day. I'm going to die. <laughs> but fortunately, and I'm just telling you the story, because your mind can be trained, not because you're thinking so much about it or because you are, uh, you know, you are obsessed with trying to do something with it, is that at some point you just give it up. <laughs> just let it go its own way. 
What I mean by giving up is to so stop. You stop giving an energy to the to the Mara voice, you know, that keeps saying, yeah, no, I'm not going to do it. No, you know, last time I did it, it was terrible, you know. But he does it, you know. How do they do it? I don't, I can't do it. The mind just keep going around and around and around. At some point, you just drop it, you know. You say, so be it. Yes, I hear you, but I'm just breathing right now. Breathing in, breathing out. It's quite happy. I'm quite happy. What's, why are you bothering me about what's going to happen at midnight or four o'clock in the morning? I'm not there yet. I'm just enjoying me right now. I'm enjoying life. You can see how much misery is coming just through fear and delusion and ignorance. So much fear can come about the future. What's going to happen in the future? If I sit until four o'clock in the morning, I'll be... I don't know what will happen. I want to you know, do something terrible. And in the early days, we used to cook and quite enjoy the cooking. There's not many kind of sensual pleasure in our life as a anagarika at the time. So cooking a good French meal, even with English ingredients, <laughs> uh, was really uh, quite a good rebirth. You know, it's like how wonderful to help the Sangha and cook some delicious food when we used to cook a long time ago. Right, and then you get spoiled by somebody in you that was saying you won't be able to do it. You, which may be true at some level. You could be very tired. You know, it's not like Mara is just Mara. It could be also also wisdom saying maybe you really can't do it. So this is the more subtle level. Sometimes it's wisdom, sometimes it's Mara, and it takes a long time to know the difference between the two. It takes a while. In fact, it takes many mistakes <laughs> thinking that Mara is wisdom and then wisdom is Mara. So for a long time, you, you don't know. Excuse me, you don't lie down in the temple. This is an exception for the kids here. Thank you. So, you know, when you um, practice, you have also to be aware of your environment, you know not just a community environment, how difficult it is sometimes to make people happy and how difficult, how easy it is to make them miserable. Right? We have two little angels there sleeping on their cushions. <laughs> the adults don't have quite that privilege yet. So, this is the end of this vasa, and I'm sure everyone here who spent the vasa at Amaravati has had the, the chance to really scrutinize Dhamma in oneself, get to know the difference between Dhamma and Avidja, between the part of us that is... Um, motivated, directed, and informed by the habits of me, my habits, mine. And then the mind that is informed by uh, awakening mind, the awakened mind, and formed by wisdom. Which means wisdom, it's a, it's a 
vague words for most people. You know, what is wisdom? Wisdom is actually the mind in action. It's the action. It's what the mind does. How to do things. It's it's an active force. This wisdom is what you manifest when you do things. And wisdom in on the path will be to act appropriately in harmony with the situation. It's like in harmony with the rules and the regulation of our life, just at the simple level. And then wisdom has to do with many things, just like with the restraint of our training. All the rules is about not doing this, not doing that, not doing this, that, this, that. 227 for some from the monk side. Many, also over 100, nearly 200, if you count all the little small small rules that we have on the non-side. Eight precepts, five precepts, but really, rules or no rules, we're still working on the delusion of our human minds. Wherever you are, whatever clothes you wear, it's exactly the same work. You could say the monastics are taking on uh, some a number of rules that prevent them, that stop them from doing certain things, like eating after 12 or 1 o'clock in the evening. Uh, in the wind, summertime, in twelve in the, in the winter time, prevent them to uh, walk wherever they want. Prevent them to, um, you know, to to have a relationship, sexual relationship with somebody. Prevent them to sexual activity, any sexual activity. So there's a lot of stopping certain things when you become a monk or a nun. Stop them to have curly hair and dye their hair. I used to do that, not Carolyn, because they were straight. But <laughs> Then you wear white or brown. I used to hate white myself. I used to find, I liked fancy clothes, really colorful. And then so you have to wear white. But, you know, fortunately I had a very colorful teacher called Achen Sumedo, so that compensated a lot. <laughs> It's very colorful personality, so <laughs> you could forget all the white completely, you know, but just by being in his presence. <laughs> Everything was very colorful around that Shinsumedo. In my experience, this in my mind, maybe not everybody's mind, but. But, you know, the mind itself is incredibly colorful. If you really begin to listen to it rather than believe it, if you begin to listen to the mind rather than arguing with it, if you listen to the mind, really deeply listen to the mind and hear it, by golly, it's really fun. Especially when you're at the beginning of the training. For me, I've been on this path for a long, long time. So my, you know, after you let go for so long, the result is that you don't have a lot of proliferation on things. It's just like normal. It's not a big thing. And it's not just getting old. It's just really, the mind is has learned the lesson of constantly proliferating on anything and everything. Somebody says something, suddenly you have to kind of proliferate. You don't listen to what they say even. You just immediately start packing in your own ideas and views and opinions about this, you know. 
So why is it that we want to stop proliferating mind? It's interesting. Why is it? People love, I mean, some people love arguing for hours about things, kill each other through argumentative mentality. People love talking to each other endlessly. I was one of them. I I really like talking a lot. Still talk quite a lot. (laughs) You know, I mean, they come from the south of France. People are very extravert and bubbly and Talk, talking like Italian a bit, you know, it's not so far away. And so what is it that makes my mind so not so interested in chat, 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 chat? Mostly because it's not necessary. You know, you can have a very wonderful, good conversation. When, I, when I'm interested in a conversation... I can talk for a long, long time, actually. It's like sometimes you just, most of the conversation you had was just feeding time. You know, most of the conversation was just like being busy with oneself, just busy, 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 busy. And then suddenly that busyness is really not so attractive anymore. You much prefer a peaceful, calm, quiet mind that seems to be connected with everything. The more you're silent, the more you connect with everything, much more deeply than you would do if you were chit-chit-chat-chat-chat-chat-chat all the time. That's what I notice. The mind that is more silent is a more intelligent mind. Not intelligent in terms of having loads and loads and loads of concepts to explain life and to, uh, you know, talk about life, it's more this just intelligence of questioning and inquiring and inquisitive mind. Why am I here? Why do I do this all the time? Why she, every time I look at her, I just want to smack her. I'm not doing that. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to smack anybody. I just want to tell you right now. But this is the kind of thing that came through my mind, uh, you know, a long, long time ago. Because I never wanted to smack people particularly. But I'm just making a bit comical, you know, like a cartoon. You look at somebody and you just kind of, you just, somebody smiling can irritate you, you know. Somebody trying to be kind to you, you just want to ask them to go. Why is that? That's when you learn that your mind is not yours, do you understand? Because if it was yours, then if somebody smiles and is nice to you, I mean, why wouldn't you, you know, return the smile to this person and say thank you for smiling? I mean, I spent many years, people were smiling to me, trying to be kind to me. I still remember John Vajiro giving me a compliment about something, which I never took as a compliment. So he said to me, I had a reputation of being a good painter, believe it or not. When we started Amarawati in the early days, they were looking for people to repaint the, the buildings. So I don't know where he got that. And it's true, I'm a maniac as a painter because he probably knew I was a perfectionist and I would not have any spots, you know, kind of dripping. Or I would go really to a long way to not have anything, you know, sticking out. So in that way, maybe I was considered a good painter, not somebody splashing spots of paint everywhere or just having dripping and looking terrible and so unprofessional and so on. 
But when he said that, you know, well, now I would, you know, now I would say thank you. You know, well, is there anything I can do? You know, at the time, because I had lots of anger, I looked at him ferociously. I remember. Don't tell me. Don't. Don't tell me that I'm a good painter because you want a good painter. I'm not going to do it. I mean, maybe it was a personality relationship. I don't know. But immediately I felt defensive. And that I just don't, you know, don't, I don't encourage anybody to do that because you create really bad karma by doing that. You don't realize that people are your karma. If you're not kind and loving with them, then it kind of goes on and on and on. People don't understand you. You're not liked by people. You're not, you know. So I just warn you, don't be careful of how you treat life from moment to moment because it does give an impression to the world after a while, you know. So I did end up doing a lot of painting for three years, you know. But... um I didn't see it as a blessing, you see. Being asked to do something is a great blessing. But for a long, long time, when you're young in the training, you think somebody's abusing you or is taking advantage of you. Not all the time, of course, you know, sometimes. Or, you know, they're just picking on you. You just want to make you work, so you really suffer. Whatever comes to your mind. I mean, I'm very creative on these things, you know. I could really be a, you know, a character in there that can create anything I want. So suddenly to, sing, to see life as a blessing, and I, I find this in Asia. Asian people have this wonderful natural, they're born with that through their own DNA. You know, when they follow the Buddhist path, they talk in terms of blessing, they talk in terms of paramita, parami, they talk in terms of doing good and how wonderful it is to do good and so on. We get so caught up in our head that doubts, that questioning mind turn against us. We have to find, you know, is that right? Do you think it's right? Are they not using me? Are they not, you know? Even I remember being in a, in a most famous Dharma center in, in America with a very famous teacher. And... I heard that she'd said that why, you know, like the monks and the nuns were kind to people, maybe because they wanted something. They were kind to people because they wanted to get something out of them. Pathetic, isn't it? Maybe that's what they will do in life. They'll be kind to people to, be, to get what they want. And then we project it onto other people. That's why the world is so miserable, because we all project our own miserable mind on each other. Let's face it, when the, you know, I noticed this morning, I mean, maybe I haven't been in the Sangha for a long time, but there was a nice atmosphere, and I just put it down on a John Amaro coming back in the, in, in the midst of, of the community. Maybe people were happy to see a John Amaro back in the, in the room, in the sala, you know. And there was a sense of more confidence and more peace and more happiness, some, something more peaceful. I don't know where it came from, I have no idea, but I just put it down to the, to the main chief, Ajahn Amaro, to the abbot, the teacher, one of the teacher. But So it's just very nice to um, see that by changing our mind, you know, the frame of our mind, 
of our mind, we can change our world. If you want to be miserable, just be miserable. Practice, develop it. Really think nasty words. Have horrible perception about yourself and others, you know. Create problem, complexity, constantly saying no to life. So many people say no to life all the time. I used to see those groups, you know, that develop positive thinking. Say yes to life, yes to life. And I used to see, gosh, what a bunch of idiots, you know. With my critical mind, I did not know the effect of yes to life. But actually, the mind that is awakened and fearless is a yes mind. That's simple as that. You don't, you don't fear. You just say, yes, I'll do it. Yes, I go for it. Depressed people have a problem because their mind is constantly bombarding them with, no, I can't do it. No, I can't carry on. No, I can't do this. No, she will not be good. No, I won't be good. No, 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 no. I still remember actually counseling my brother who was very depressed at some point. And I say, say yes to life, Jean-Jacques. And she said, said, yes, I know, my psychotherapist tell me the same thing. And eventually, he did say yes to life, and it worked for him. He's very happy, a happy mind, peaceful mind. No? So, what does it mean to say yes to life? It means stop barring your life that comes through the, the, this mind and body, this world here. Don't say no when something happened. And I don't mean in a stupid way. You say no, you say yes, sorry, with wisdom. If somebody come and attacks you, don't say, oh, she said yes to life. Let's him, you know, kill me. No problem. Yes, I have to say yes to life. It's not that kind of yes. It's more like challenging one's fear. And it's really worth it because it works. It actually works. If you want to do the, the work deeply on your mind, you can really truly free the mind from states of, from states, let's say, emotions, feelings, mood, etc., habits that keep making the mind paralyzed with fear, paralyzed with mountain of thinking because you can't you can't bear the emptiness of a peaceful mind. So, I personally feel very happy just to be with people uh, conscious people who are really dedicating their energy and mind and body to a world of freedom, a world of consciousness, a world of of transformation into something that represents the good in the world. The good is not just a small thing. You're just adding your drop of life to the good of the world. Isn't it wonderful? Rather kind of dragging in your world and adding to the world kind of a drop of misery, a muddy drop of confusion and misery. You think about it. Isn't it nice to drip, to bring into the world a beautiful a raindrop? 
of happiness and peace. Pure intention, pure perception. What is a pure perception? It's not that you have to be an arahant to have a pure perception. It's more like you know when your perception is conditioned and here it goes again, I'm seeing that guy or this woman or this group as miserable and awful. It's like a mood just passing through. Oh God, what am I doing with all these people? It's just a mood passing through. And then the next thing you know, you go to the kitchen and work with Jose and then suddenly the mood is gone. <laughs> kitchen is great. Amarwati kitchen is great. I had to really, you know, handle my own sort of mind when one of the French people four years ago, when he came for the first time, very nice, we came back several times now. I, I said, I asked to all of them, you know, their impression at the end of the retreat, at the end of the week, they had as guests and retreatants, you know, for part of the day. And uh, I, so I asked it, all the impressions of teachings and myself and people here and all that, you know. And one of them says, all, everything was about Jose in the kitchen. It's like his guru, his guru has become Jose, his Dharma guru was Jose. So now we laugh when we see each other. <laughs> well, I'm glad at least you got a door of, of dhammas and happiness. <laughs> he's a practitioner. He's a, very, he's a very serious practitioner. But obviously, his heart opened up with Jose, <laughs> particularly. People, you know, our heart needs to open up to the life, you know. So sometimes people do that to us. We get op op uh, we open our heart and we feel very happy. But that's still not yet liberation. Liberation and when you can do that with a mind peaceful and a mind trained and transformed and the mind is in such a beautiful position that your mind is always open. Your, your heart is always open. It's not like it closes. It's open and that's it. It has price also because when it's open and it's not strong yet, then you get also swamped by a lot of impression and feelings and sensitivity. Your sensitivity is exacerbated, you know, by the world around you. So what helps that is to have a strong refuge, you know, the refuge in awareness, the refuge that sees this sensitivity, but has the strong development of restraint, not to repress this sensitivity, because that would be a really bad job for you, but to actually contain it in such a way you see it and you see it and you see it and you see anicca of it. You know, you could say most of the Buddhist teaching, the, one of the most important parts of the Buddhist training and teaching is to see that things are impermanent. You know, you see when things are impermanent, you can begin to get a real realization of no selfness, you know, no self. When things are impermanent, you're losing your fear of life because you realize you're not stuck in a prison. You're not completely at the mercy of your blind habits, reactive habits. The mind is a mass of reactivity. That's all it is. You don't have to hate your reactivity. I mean, reactivity is not a bad thing. It's just how it is. It's just the way it is. And sometimes this reactivity comes out of nowhere. You know, you have a situation, suddenly you start crying. You wonder why. Why do I cry? 
or you start laughing about something, something you just look at something and it seems very funny. Nobody else has seen it as funny. But you see, inside you're laughing hysterically about something that kind of benign for anybody else, it's just boring for anybody else. But for you, it has a suddenly a perception, a certain perception. So I'd just like to finish with the fact that um, one of the hardest parts of the teaching is not so much our delusion, it's actually pa the patient it needs, that is needed, to look at the mind as it is, not as you want it to be. If you want it to be, I want it to be this way. That's as it is, as the as it isness of I want it to be this way. I wish I would not be angry. That's as it is. I wish I'd be angry. That's a thought at that moment. But most of us, we believe that thought. We get caught up in that thought. I wish I would not be angry. So you make a self with it. You think you have control over it. I wish and maybe it will happen. At that moment, you can just listen. And you, say, you hear your mind saying, I wish I would not be angry. I hear you, mind. So, the intelligence of the mind is, what do I need to do not to get angry? What do I need to do to stop reacting angrily? That's the intelligence of the heart-mind. Questioning, how can I decrease my anger? Is there something wrong with being angry? Is there? Just emotions, feelings, reaction, hurt, whatever, a reactivity through something you don't like. It's simple, isn't it? But when I was angry, by golly, it wasn't so simple. You know, it was a whole mountain of, she was wrong, I'm wrong, she's bad, she, you know. It wasn't so simple. At some point, it's very simple. I get angry when I don't get what I want. I can get, I'm not saying every time. Now I'm trained myself. You know, the anger can come when you get what you want or you don't get what you want. And in Buddhism, it's called dukkha. So the patience, endurance it takes just to be with a mind that's constantly moving, moving, it's like on the go somewhere, <laughs> sorting out grandma somewhere like three years ago, sorting out my ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, or sorting out my mother and father, sorting out the little girl that I was when I was two or three. Do you know, it's, it's a lot of activities in, in this mind. A lot of movements, constant movements. So you have to endure that, to come to peace and to come to rest in yourself. You have to bear and have the patience to listen and to stay with the way it is. Not easy. with the way it is, not the way I want. If you want the way I want, you can listen. This is the way I want. That's the way it is. This is the way I want. When you don't want something, I hate that. How can I get something else? You can stop. The practice will be stop here if you want to experiment with your mind. I hate that. You listen. Who is speaking? You can ask question. You can have fun with your mind. Who 
Who is speaking here? Who hates that? Is it me? Is it really me? Is there somebody else in there talking to me? You need to challenge the mind like that, you know. Who is speaking? Who is talking? Who is angry? Who is mad at me or at them? That's the process of inquiry to awaken the mind to the fact that it might be just caught into a, a the, the, the kind of the rot, the, what do you call that, the sort of remembering by rot an old situation that brings back the same response, the same feeling, the same perception. And you need to question the mind, because if you don't question the mind, the space that is needed to actually see something in an objective way, like an object, you know, most of the time we are like this. At first, I'm not saying forever, forever. we're like this. It's so close to us, you know. I'm not, like I used to say, and many people have said that, I'm not angry, I'm just right. Sorry. <laughs> and you're wrong, of course. <laughs> easy, isn't it? That's an easy way to start life. I'm okay, you're not. So the, the, the deluded mind has a very easy way to, to bring up happiness into his, in itself. It's an easy way. Black and white, you know, you're wrong, I'm right. You know, you're deluded, I'm just trying to help you. <laughs> to kind of get a bit less deluded. We don't look at our own delusion. A lot of the time we're busy trying to work out other people's delusion. If we're not careful. or interpreting other people's delusion. Sorry, I haven't finished. <laughs> Hello? Who wants me to stop? <laughs> you see, perception, um, interpretation. <laughs> it's all right. I'm not offended, don't worry. Whoever did it, I won't question right now. I'm not offended at all. Life is like that. That's how it is. No problem. So, I leave you, listen to your mind. Try to really put a lot of energy into listening to the mind rather than believing the mind. Sometimes we try to do a lot of practice, you know, a lot of practice with lots of different methods, lots of learning in the books and lots of practice. We're just shutting the mind down, you know, shutting up the mind down. <laughs> it's like we use a sledgehammer just to see a thought disappear. I mean, the thought will disappear. It's nature is to go anyway. You don't, it doesn't even need you. It doesn't need you to disappear. It's happened by itself. And people are just like suppressing and suppressing thinking. If you listen to the mind, you will see that it goes by itself. You don't need to bash it and to kind of push it away and get angry with it and get upset and pile up your list of methods to do this and that. I've got to the right nostril and the left nostril and three times, not four, no, three times, just three times. Otherwise it's going to fall apart, all my practice was fall apart if I just breathe through the wrong nostrils. 
and more than four. Well, you're breathing all day long until you die, so don't worry about how many times you breathe in and out. But we can get blinded by our own teachings and our own message. You know, be careful. Just be more natural, relax, you know, just relax. Listen to your mind, relax. Listen to other people, relax. Take it easy. Not lazy, but just don't complicate. Keep it simple. Right now. You can think about the future and I've got to do this tomorrow. And to, it's okay, listen to your mind kindly. Got to do this. I'll never be able to do that. No, no, no. So, yeah, this meeting, I won't go because I'll be too tired. And, yeah. That's Mara, you know, tired. Tired. You just have to think tiredness for about five minutes. The whole body gets exhausted. Do you know that? Your mind is so powerful that if you think I'm going to be tired with great passion and interest, it will have all the, all the symptoms of exhaustion. Can't do it. You know, the mind is a trick, trickster, complete trickster. And I'm still looking at my trickster every day. Don't think I'm beyond that myself. I'm just seeing it all the time. And I have this idea, what would be an arahant, you know? <laughs> the mind. <laughs> and so just at the beginning of perceiving and the ideal arahant in my mind. No, no, do sooner. Just go back here. What are you thinking now, right now? Just, you know, how are you feeling? Do, is there any dukkha in there right now? You know, just that kind of questioning. You don't get stuck into a kind of ideal that one can imagine. Because the ideals can come up and percolate in one very quickly. And then be in complete kind of conflict with the reality of now. And we get stressed through that. Get a lot of dukkha. So, space, give yourself lots of space to all the illusion to go through untouched, you know. Don't imagine that because you give yourself space and loving kindness and all, all the delusion will just nicely disappear under the carpet of my peace of mind. The carpet of my peace of mind. It's nice and cozy there. Warm, you get very peaceful, and then you fall asleep easily. Be careful. I know people like that. But the Buddha doesn't ask us to fall asleep. He asks us to really question and reflect on things and use our mind, the brain. If you want to use a brain, use it, but use it wisely. Question. See how things work. See the condition that brings certain state of mind. See the condition that doesn't bring them those states of mind. So it's looking at cause and effect again and again, cause and effect, rather than trying to become the perfect Buddhist. You know. That's many people are becoming the perfect Buddhist. But Buddha, I said, I went, <laughs> I shocked my retreat in France, some people, but in a good way, I just said, actually, Buddhism doesn't exist. I was part of a long discussion, don't worry, it's not like... Buddhism doesn't exist. The Buddha never created Buddhism. Remember that? He just got enlightened. 
That's why in one of our retreats I said, let's use the word awakenism so the mountain of website you've read on Buddhism will disappear instantly in your mind. Right? All the idea you have about Buddhism can just drop away if you give it another name. You can challenge it, just have fun with that. You call the Buddhism just awake. I just played on the word awakenism, which is not particularly a good word, but then all the memory we have about Buddhism and the forest tradition and the monks and that monks that I want to become like this monk and that nun or this. You know, we, we're like Thomas Merton used to say when I was a laywoman and reading Thomas Merton's book. One of this book called The Seeds of Contemplation was particularly striking to me because I was looking for something, I was looking into the aspect of integrity, what integrity meant truly, you know. And then when I went home, I just opened the book, as it happens, as you know, these things happen, on the chapter, integrity. So that was quite extraordinary. Open, integrity. And he had a great sense of humor, that's why I liked him. Because, you know, it's not, no matter, you know, whether, whether you put a robe on and, you know, you, you've been a monk and so on, you know, uh, as we say in French, la ne fait pas le moine. The habit, the robe, doesn't make the, the monk, you know. So the, the, what, it's not because you wear a robe that suddenly you're so special, you know. And many people do feel very special at first, at least for the first 10 years, maybe. After that, you know, people maybe see you special, but you've given up on the idea of being special. I mean, the, the, the perception you have of being special, you know. You're quite different from most people, but it doesn't mean you're special. Yeah, just different, different robes, different hair, right? And um, he said something like, a tree can only be a tree, no matter what you want to do with it. it can, you plant a tree, you get a tree, right? And many people in the monastery, Thomas Merton was part of a very famous monastery, he was a Trappist monk, and quite enlightened, I thought, and... Uh, he would say, uh, you know, many monks in the monastery are still trained to be the monk that existed 200 years ago, 300 years ago. They're still trying to become this monk that existed several hundred years ago. And at the time, I wasn't a Buddhist, but I got it. So it brought a lot, of a lot of peace and insight. I had a sense of things about uh, spiritual life, the think about religious, I didn't like that at all myself, because I had a real sense that, I don't know, it was strange to know that. I knew that whatever the truth went through, it went through being oneself, real, being who I am. Everybody is different. You all have a different sort of life. And I had a very strong sense until I, am, I, I follow a path that leads me to just who I am, just simple, you know, not a big thing. Not a real thing. It doesn't mean I could have not maybe a, a president. I could be anything or anybody could be anything being themselves. But it began with just being human, I guess. I, I did not know how to put the two together, just being human. You know, you're not a monk or a nun or a lay person. We're just, first of all, human. And that's what binds us together, not being a monk or a nun necessarily. But humanity, 
uh, our own humanity. And then, very often, we're not trained just to, be, to look at the person as it is from moment to moment for 20 years. This person here, the functioning of this particular mind, we're still continuously trying to be an image of something that existed a long time ago or that you hope will ex exist one day. You don't realize it's just by emptying all perception, emptying all idea, all thoughts, you know, the mind from all these things that actually you get to know yourself truly. And you know yourself without the delusion of self you know, maybe it's not completely free, of course, you know, none of us here are free completely, but it's actually the part, the life, the good life, you could say. You get to know the good life that is independent of the misery of the world, independent of what other people say, what life does to you. It's just the good world, the good life, the self that's been pure, that, that has been known for what it is, it's not the self they're trying to get rid of, to become a good Buddhist and all that. That's just rubbish, you know. I mean, of course it's not rubbish. Well, sorry to say that. It's not rubbish. What I mean is that it's, a, it's an un, uh, it's a energy, misguided energy work, you know. The, the work to do is just to be really oneself, to observe the way it is here now. The whole Buddhism is built on this expression, the way it is. What does it mean? Not the way I want, the way it should, the way it ought to be, the way it doesn't, should, shouldn't be. To, is the way it is, is, what do you see now in this moment? The way it is changing all the time. What do you see now in this very moment? Just one moment. You see this moment and what happened? It's anicca. There's no here, nobody here. It's Anicca. The next moment, it's Anicca. But each moment is an information center. You can hear what you're saying. You can hear what you're perceiving. You can hear, you can see what you're doing. You can see how you're feeling. Every moment is like information center. It informs you about the life here that manifests through this world, that you, your world. So... I should stop, really, but <laughs> sometimes you perk up and I perk up again. <laughs> I see a few faces, like, interested. I say, oh, yeah. Uh, I say nothing, but it just carries on on its own. <laughs> so I apologize. I've been too long for some of you, and you nearly fell asleep. It's okay. I fell asleep in myself in talks also, so <laughs> I can understand. And I wish you a very good um, end of the Vasa and uh, continuous growth into the Dharma and have fun with life just the way it is now. Just what I mean, have fun. Don't break your precept, please. <laughs> Don't break any precept. But keep things light, you know. Don't make it heavy for yourself. Don't become a heavy, miserable Buddhist. Which there's quite a few around. I mean, there were many more 30 years ago, I think. Now that therapy, psychotherapy exists, mind stress reduction, you know, and so on, people have kind of lightened up in their daily life. 
They don't take themselves so seriously. So I'll end on that.